and this is really important, if Joe Biden wins this election, it doesn't mean uh, that like we've turned the page to a new America. It, it doesn't mean that you can, as a civic matter or a political matter, ignore the fact that millions and millions and millions of people are going to vote for Donald Trump in 2020. And they they need to have a place in this country. We, we need to be really clear about what we reject and what sort of sentiments we say we don't want to be embraced in public life, but the people are there. And so anyone suggesting that they're gonna lead the country has, has to lead the whole country. Hello, dear friends and damn givers. Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. I'm your host, Nick LaPara, and this is the show where I sit down for meaningful conversations with people who aim to build fewer walls, longer bridges, and bigger tables with their lives and work. I truly hope today's conversation gives you hope and pushes you to give more dams than ever before. My guest today is my friend and fellow damn giver, Michael Ware. Michael has a lifelong commitment to addressing civil rights and poverty issues. He believes politics is a forum for loving your neighbor. Let me repeat that for you. Michael Ware believes politics is a forum for loving your neighbor. And that's exactly why he is on the show today, to help convince us that politics isn't something we should shy away from and that we should instead be leaning into more and more. Michael is a leading strategist, speaker, and practitioner at the intersection of faith, politics, and public life. And he advised the president. You heard that right. Ever heard of a guy by the name of Barack Obama? Michael led faith outreach for President Obama's 2012 re-election campaign. And at a very young age, he served in the White House's faith-based initiative during President Obama's first term. Among other things, Michael now serves as the chief strategist for the AND campaign. And whether you're religious or not, I highly recommend his fantastic book, Reclaiming Hope. I've read it a couple times. Get it. It's going to help you so much. And we both grew up a few minutes from each other. He's from Buffalo, New York. I was born in Rochester, New York. So there's that fun and super important fact. Selfishly, I wanted Michael to give me hope for the future. That's why I had him on. And he delivered. I left our chat feeling more inspired and more hopeful than ever. And I hope our conversation will do the same for you. So let's jump right in, shall we? You can reach out to me anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. And here's my conversation with one of the youngest White House staffers in modern American history and lover of all things Italian, Michael Ware. Let's go. We have been, um, I don't know if homies or friends or what is the correct <laughs> word for our relationship on social media, but I'm so, I've been looking forward to this for quite some time. And I think it's a, you know, maybe it's good that we didn't get together back then because I've got some like pent up, you know, energy yeah. and questions. And I think your voice is one that is needed right now. Um, even more than, I mean, we could have talked four years ago in 2015, 2016, leading into the last election season, but this one feels so much. It feels heavier. It feels heavier. It really does. There's some heavy things. And I was not as, I'm not an anxious person as it is. Like I usually take everything pretty in stride. 
and I just feel myself having to take, you know, more deep breaths these days, which is not a bad idea anyway, but yeah. I'm, I'm super thrilled to, uh, be, to get to chat with you, uh, before we jump into the heavy stuff, the big stuff, let's get some story. Let's get some backstory because I know you folks might not know you on the podcast. Uh, go back as far as you want to give us the who, when, the who, what, when, where, and why of your story. Gosh. So, uh, well, I'm from, I'm from Buffalo, New York. Uh, uh, and, uh, did you know we have similarities there? I hate to interrupt you. Oh, uh, no. Like, so I was born in Rochester, New York. Okay, great. Like, yeah, like yeah. right, right down the road. So we are, we are neighbors and we're within a few years of each other age wise. So we're, yeah. we we're probably there. When did you yeah. leave Buffalo? Uh, 2006. Oh, you were there for so a good chunk of your life or yeah. half, I guess half your life. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. And, uh, yeah, if I would have known that you were from Rochester, I would have, uh, got my garbage played out. We could have, <laughs> we could have just, uh, had, had a Western New York feast. <laughs> I'm I've been, I've been vegetarian for six years, so I don't know if the garbage plate would land too yeah, well right now. Sure. I would, I would feel like shit in all the ways if I did that now, but f- folks, garbage plate if you don't know what we're talking about people argue about whether it's western new york or upstate new york but it's in the western part of the state so we'll call it western in western new york there's this thing called the garbage plate and it was birthed i guess in rochester uh by as as far as people can tell there's a bunch of like fights but it was nick tahoe who uh who started it and it's literally what it sounds like a garbage plate it is um uh, mac salad and home fries on the bottom then your meat on top, whether that's two burgers, two cheeseburgers, two red hots, two white hots, and then you cover it with uh, what are they the hot sauce? What do they call that thing? I've I haven't been there in so long. The the sauce on top, it's like yeah, oh, it's yeah, also yeah. it also has meat in it, and then you just put a ton of ketchup and hot sauce on it, and you just <laughs> go to town. Uh, goodness, yeah. and uh, and I think I have I have the record still. Well, I mean maybe not now because the last one I had was probably uh, 10, 12 years ago. But I downed an entire garbage plate in three minutes flat. What I mean, an accomplishment, man. Yeah. Oh, accomplishment. And then I felt terrible later, obviously. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's like 3,000 calories in, in three minutes. That's And not, that's when you became a vegetarian. That was, yeah, that was, that was it. That, yeah. that put me, that put me over the edge. Okay. Anyway, keep going. Buffalo, hey, yeah. New York. Sorry for interrupting. No, no, no. That's good. So, uh, so yeah. So grew up in Buffalo. Um, it's where, um, it grew up in, I mean, it'll be familiar to you, grew up in like a, a big Italian Catholic family, like many folks in the Rust Belt. And, uh, but wasn't, you know, particularly, you know, religious growing up and even like a little, you know, antagonistic in the way that like an adolescent uh, could be. Um, became a Christian when I was 15 uh, after reading Romans. And that just sort of changed everything for me. Um, I was already interested in politics, but but thought initially, well, now I need to like go to seminary, become a pastor, just mm. do like the most Christian thing, you know, possible. Uh, but thankfully, I had a pastor in my life who said, you know, Michael, look around. There are Christians who aren't pastors. <laughs> and I said, oh, oh, that's a good observation. Uh, and so I um, I went to D.C. and went to George Washington University. And sort of the, the question that's guided my vocation has been, you know, what does it look like? What does it mean to be faithful in public things? Um, I should say that my wife is from Buffalo. We went to middle school and high school together. And so we, nice. have, a, we have a 21-month-old uh, daughter now. And uh, we, got, we got married in, in, 
uh, in 2011 after we'd been in DC together for a, a while. So I went to GW, uh, you know, long story uh, shorter, uh, <laughs> I, my sophomore year uh, at college, I met uh, in the lobby of a hotel, uh, a young senator by the name of Barack Obama. And hmm. uh, he would announce a few days after we met that he was running for president. I'd followed his career. Um, and the way that he spoke to faith in particular was meaningful to me. I told him I wanted to work for him. And 10 months later, I was in Iowa uh, during the presidential campaign. And so that set off, you know, an incredible, unexpected, you know, chain reaction that brought me to the White House, uh, where I served in the faith-based office for three and a half years, and then uh, was asked to run religious outreach for his re-election campaign. Uh, and so did that. Uh, and uh, did the second inaugural, I ran religious affairs for his for his second inauguration. Um, and then uh, I've, I've been consulting and writing. I wrote a book, Reclaiming Hope in 2017, I have a new book out called Compassion and Conviction that just came out last month um, uh, that I co-authored with um, my friends, Justin Gibney and Chris Butler. Um, that's uh, uh, it's a book that reflects the Ann campaign. And I've been, uh, you know, speaking at the intersection of faith and politics yeah. and culture for a long time. So that's, I, yeah, that's, that's kind of where I am. I'm still, I'm still based in DC uh, uh, in Northern Virginia. Nice. Okay. So we have, we have so much to unpack there before we get into kind of the heavy stuff. I'm glad you went into, I'm glad you went as far as, you know, meeting, meeting president Obama in, uh, at the time, Senator Obama in that lobby, and that led to, I mean, really, I should point out that I think, uh, what are you, 32 years old right now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you've already, I mean, you've already lived, uh, you know, an entire lifetime by the time you're 32. I mean, because this was how many years ago? What what, what age were you when you met uh, President Obama in that, then Senator Obama in that lobby? Uh, 19? 19, yeah, and that was, that was my calculation as well. Yeah. And so, you know, there were some people... Obama included, that took some leaps of faith on you. They obviously saw something yeah. in you, but they <laughs> yeah. saw this young kid yeah. that was like, hey, I want to work for you. And probably many people listening have done that to someone, you know, at some point, and they've been like, nah, that's not that's not going to happen. And, and, and a president, <laughs> you know, a, a, a then president or would-be president took that leap on you. So before we get into all that, because I've got so much to unpack there, I do want to bring up one more thing about your story, is if anybody follows you for any length of time on your social media, you cannot stop. There's a few things you cannot stop talking about. Well, one is that you're Italian. Yeah, this is true. Right? Is true. And yeah. so I am, I, I wanted to point out that not only did we live an hour from each other growing up, but uh, I am also half Italian. My yeah. family comes from uh, the Campo Basso uh, area in Italy. And so my mom's uh, uh, maiden name is Manigros. That was the English version of uh, Manigrasso, which means big hands or fat hands, which is what, which is yeah. where our like name. And uh, oddly enough, most of us have humongous hands. Like I have humongous, like piano finger hands that uh, it's so funny that with the last name, big hands, uh, yeah, some yeah. of, some of us actually have some really huge hands. Like I'm, yeah. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a small Latino Italian that can like Palma basketball, yeah. but, uh, but what, what, it, before we get into bigger stuff, like what you love being Italian, what it is, it, what is it about your, uh, culture and be, you know, uh, how, how far back, um, I mean, is it, like which which of your relatives came over here? Is it more recent or is it like a long time ago? Give me some of that history because I love when people get excited about where they're from. I love when people figure that out and really embrace it. 
And it's something I think that uh, is important for us. So just from your perspective, how did that sort of evolve? Yeah, I mean, so actually, this is a probably a deeper sort of uh, subject than, than maybe you were uh, anticipating. Um, it, it's just been really important for me. So I'm, um, you know, I'm, it's given me a sense of sort of uh, rootedness and connectivity that I didn't always feel growing up. Um, uh, uh, my, my, I'm adopted. So my adoptive family is, mm. is Italian. Um, uh, but, um, and that goes back. Uh, so it was my great grandparents that came over. So not too recent. Um, but, uh, my great grandparents, you know, spoke broken English their entire life. My grandparents spoke Italian and then, you know, by the time you get to my parents, it's pretty uh, Americana. Yeah, sketchy, you know, yeah, pretty, right. Pretty, pretty, uh, uh, and so I'm, uh, you know, it's just been really meaningful. You know, growing up, I never thought, you know, my grandfather was finally able to go to Italy, I, th- I think for like his 50th anniversary or like a, you know, it was a, it was a major accomplishment for my grandfather to get to go to Italy. And that's what I always thought, like, like, man, maybe one day I'll get to go and, things have just worked out where uh, in part, cause I have a wife who's, who's gracious in this way um, where we've been able to spend a, a decent amount of time in Italy over the last five, six years. And so I've just come to love it being there. Um, and so, yeah, it's that, that combination of sort of rootedness to family history. Um, the, I mean, the culture is just beautiful. Obviously love the food, love the art. Um, I think the Italian community in America is a really beautiful thing. Um, and, and, and then just, you know, being there. And so I spend most of my time in, in Northern Italy, even though my family's from the South. Um, so we love Bologna. Bologna is our, yeah, our yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's just a, it's just a beautiful thing and would recommend, you know, one of my favorite things to do is when, you know, I tell people my DMS are always open if you need Italy recommendations or anything like that, it's a, yeah, it's a great source of joy. The last thing I'd say is, you know, I'm a big uh, 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 fan of Bologna's uh, football team. So I've gotten nice. So, uh, so yeah, so we've, we've been able to, to go to a few games and actually took my daughter to her first game last year, which was a blast. Amazing. I mean, I think um, especially, I, I actually, I don't think I knew that you were adopted, like, especially for that, like it's it's so important. I one of my frustrations about uh, living in America for half my life, first half or kind of the ten years uh, when I was a when I was a kid, we moved to Guatemala for ten years. That's where my dad is from. So I'm half Italian. Then my dad's a Guatemalan immigrant. He came from Guatemala when he was young. And um, one th- one thing that's been so frustrating about living in America these last like decade, decade and a half is so many people. And we'll get to American exceptionalism or this idea that they're trying to pitch to us that America is so great and so amazing and flawless. And you get so into that, you buy into that lie so much that you forget where you've come from and how important that is. Right. Um, I, I had, um, two really special guests on over the last few weeks. One was, uh, Mark Charles, independent presidential candidate. And then one was a friend of his, a mutual friend of all three of ours, which was Charles Robinson, who's yeah. another Native American. You know, you know Charles Robinson. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know Charles. Yeah. I smoke Charles's cigars all the time. We were smoking back yes, with his kids. So am I. <laughs> yes. Oh man, I love, love, love. I didn't know that connection. That's amazing. But you know, we t- I talked with both of them about the importance of naming things and knowing where you 
come from. All of that is so important because it gives you this groundedness. One of my big frustrations in his life is being born in New York, growing up in Guatemala, spending six years traveling the world. And then since then, since getting married, you know, four years in Minneapolis, four years in Tacoma, Washington, now four years in Nashville, and we're leaving again on this continuous search to find home. I just, yeah. I just, have you, have you seen home on Apple TV, the show on Apple TV? I have seen it? No. So it's about um, all these wonderful like homes, but it's not a reg- It's not like an HGTV home yeah, show. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they go deep, deep into the stories and these are very incredible homes. And I just watched an episode with uh, this guy named Theaster in Chicago. And he is in the South side of Chicago where people, you know, where all the violence is and you know, where people, People from outside Chicago think, oh, don't go there. You'll get shot up, and there's all this, and there's all that. And they have this perception of south side of Chicago, and that's been his home. And so he's bought all these buildings and converted them into a – he bought an old bank, and he bought an old this and converted them and just these really beautiful spaces. He's been able to do that because he's he has home and he's stayed, yeah. right? Yeah. And we're still – my wife and I talk about this all the time. Like, we've got to find home. Like, yeah. we want to find home so that we can, like – even with only being in places for three or four years at a time, we've been able to do really well with our neighbor. Like I could take you to all my neighbors right now and they all know us and we have supper together and things like that. But it's still, there's always this thing in the back of our heads like, oh, we're not staying here. Like right. this was, this was short term. We moved here for a purpose and now we've got to move on. And so it's just an important conversation about, I love that it you're is. so. It pr- really is. Yeah. 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 It really is. And then, you know, I just affirm your, um, you know, growing up, um, the the idea, um, I've been really struck. My experience growing up in a place like Buffalo was, and there are some unhealthy aspects to this, uh, but um, sort of a white identity was not, we, we never spoke about being white. We were Italian. <laughs> you know, there was a spe- specificity to it. And you know, that comes with all kinds of like, um, well, the Italians are different than the Irish or different than the Polish. And, you know, there's all those kind of like old school, like feuds and that kind of thing. And so some of that's not healthy. Uh, I have been struck by being in the Rust Belt in the last four or five years to see people I've known my entire life identify as white. And, uh, you know, they, they know my political standing and things like that. And I remember being at a wedding in 2015, 2016, someone I've known my entire life came up to me and started a conversation. It became, it became clear, you know, that they were asking um, questions that sort of intimated that, um, you know, that uh, like whites need to stick together and why, why are you, I, that just did not, it was not a part of like the, the, the culture growing up, it is a part of the season that we're in now, not to go to big issues really fast, but it's part of what Trump has, I think, um, uh, empowered and, and what he's sort of given voice to. And it's, it's not a healthy, it's not a healthy thing. So I, I really, I really agree. And I've talked to, I know, you know, Lisa Sharon Harper, uh, and, and this, this idea that, uh, that, folks knowing their history <laughs> and, and having a sense of rootedness where it's possible um, in a tradition that's real, not in a constructed uh, sort of political uh, category like white um, is, is, is something that, uh, that, yeah, I just think it's important. 
Yeah, super important. I totally agree. So one of the reasons, Michael, that I wanted to have you on again, I just wanted to like actually face to face meet and let's chat and let's 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 uh, you know start this amazing friendship that's forthcoming. I'm sure of it. But the one of the one of the big things I wanted you to come on and talk about was I think you have a very measured, mature like way of talking about politics in general. Not just I know your angle is politics, faith, and culture, right? You kind of that's the your intersection. Yeah. yeah. But I think the the way you talk about politics and the way you uh, walk through these kind of big issues, not kind of very big issues, uh, applies to anyone, whether they have a faith leaning or not, or whether it's your faith leaning or not. I mean, it's all yeah. you, you you kind of present things in a way that you can't really in my most of the time you present it stuff. I'm sure we have you know a, a a fairly long list of things that we might not agree on. Maybe not. Maybe a, maybe a little list, but we have a list. But I always want to engage with you about those things because of the way that you present them. And so we are coming up on um, over the next few weeks, I'm going to have a few different people from different angles come on and talk about, um, you know, 75% of listeners are here in the US, 25% are in like 50 or 60 other countries, but there's most of them are here. Yeah. And we have a pretty big, we have pretty big stuff coming up right now. And so right before the election, Kirsten Powers is going to be on and a few others in between there. And so Let's let's dive right in yeah, on 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 all things uh, politics right now because I one of the things that I want to get your kind of quick take on is you in your newsletter that is hosted on Substack, um, which I really enjoy. Thank you. Um, you've been following and kind of giving updates uh, each and every day, you know, through the DNC and now the RNC. What are some of the biggest, let's start high level and then we'll get into nitty gritty. Like what are some of the high level, um, you know, things that you've know the differences you've noticed, tones, focus, just like, and, and I'm not looking for anything in particular. If you're, if there are things about the RNC that you're like super jazzed about or like really impressed by <laughs> surprised by, like, yeah. give it to me. But what is like, yeah, just tone focus. Like what are the main differences you're seeing between these two pretty important events that are. I think in some ways unifying some people and in some ways further polarizing people, um, some pretty wild stuff we've seen, you know, little clips yeah. and longer speeches and stuff over the last few days. Yeah. I mean, so, right. I, th I think one of the main takeaways I've had is, you know, our, our politics is increasingly, increasingly driven by a relatively small set of, actors and interests and folks who are sort of hyper-engaged. Um, and the conventions, the Democratic convention more than the Republican, but this applies to both. It has seemed to me that the conventions uh, re reflect sort of uh, a, a vision of the political party that is um, appealing in the way that uh, sort of the, the the party leaders know it should be <laughs> um, yeah. uh, appealing to a wider set of Americans than what the actual day to day operations of these of these politicians and, and the political parties actually look like. And so, you know, I think the Democratic uh, convention in particular was really you know healthy. I mean, the criticism of it would be, you know, it, it was it was more narrative driven. It, they did not, uh, there were not long sort of policy discourses. But, you know, if, if, I'm a, if I'm a Fox News watching Republican and I'm watching the Democratic Convention, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking this is, not, this is not what I've been told, <laughs> you know, the Democratic Party is. And to a certain extent, you know, the Republican Convention has 
been very much about trying to convey the idea that what you've been told about Donald Trump is not true. <laughs> like what you've been told about the Republican Party is not the real Republican Party. Now, some of that's been through propaganda. Uh, I, I believe on Tuesday, you know, they had a naturalization ceremony in the White House. This is on behalf of a, uh, a president who's been uh, advanced xenophobic rhetoric and policy by any reasonable estimation. Uh, it's not being uh, too partisan to say that. Uh, they've been uh, lifting up all kinds of, they had a slate of sort of uh, female Trump administration staffers last night talk about how great Trump is to women and how he's lifting them up. So like some of it's propaganda, but, but that would be one of my main takeaways. These conventions are one of the few opportunities in our politics right now where the parties feel like they're communicating to the nation, not just to siloed out sort of echo chambers. And that's been reflected. Um, and it should lead us to think about um, uh, every other day and whether we sure. prefer a political party that's casting a broader net or whether we, whether we like and reward uh, politicians who speak uh, in, in a narrow in a narrow kind of way. Um, you know, I thought just a, a couple more comments on on the Democratic Convention. It was um, remarkably faith forward, obviously, especially on that on that last night. I mean, yeah. we had 40 straight minutes really of really faith centric programming. I think a big part of that was preempting what they knew would be coming uh, this week from the Republicans. But I also think it's genuine to uh, to Biden and his his vision, not just of his own personal faith, but but of the role faith plays in the country. Um, and, and then I just thought that the keynote speakers were just wonderful for the convention. I thought First Lady Michelle Obama, you know, in 2012, she gave a speech that sort of blew people away in 2016. It felt like she carried that night and you thought, gosh, how is she going to do it again? Uh, and she, did. And she, she did it again. Uh, I thought, obviously, my, my former boss, uh, President Obama, was incredible and gave a, uh, it was vintage Obama. There have been a lot of comments that, uh, oh, like he's, you know, uh, he, uh, you know, he's changed from hope to fear or he's, and it's like, no, if you, if you read that speech, and read his 2004 speech or the 2008 speech he gave in Philadelphia on race, there is a clear through line, everything from his, his admiration for the framework of the constitution, which he talked about in his 2020 convention speech, to the way that he approached race, um, uh, to the way that he approached, I mean, he's just doggedly insistent on trying to persuade Americans who disagree with him. And the perseverance it takes to, you know, serve as president for eight years, be in the public eye for now, you know, a, a couple decades and still be like, I'm going to, I'm going to treat fellow Americans with good faith is just really admirable to me. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's really damn good at that too. I mean, even my, you know, um, to bring it, you know, home for a second, like yeah. even my parents who, um, despite my dad, you know, coming here as an illegal immigrant and becoming naturalized and growing up here in that sort of environment, he, he's been pretty like, pretty in with president Trump, yeah. um, for a variety of reasons. And we've had, we've gone around and around on that. Um, but even, even, even 
with with how he feels the pl- things should be going and who he wants to become president, who who did become president, who he wants to become president again, he th- he can't say a bad thing about President Obama. You, yeah. you, he can't. Even this guy who's even my dad who wants President Trump to to become the next president is like I can't I can't like I respect yeah. the dude like you can't because he's he, he and Michelle both have maintained such maturity and clarity and they they've kept their eye on the prize which is truly that doesn't mean that they're not going to speak out on injustices or speak out when evil things happen but their eye on the prize is like is truly unifying uh americans the 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 most amount of americans possible right right? because you're not going to get everybody in this kind of environment yeah and 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 we're and we're currently seeing the exact opposite that where it's i mean i mean our current uh president wants to draw very clear lines in the sand and he wants to he wants to separate people he wants to put you know in two different camps two different career like a clear fence in between there's no there's no, there doesn't seem to be a desire to really unify anybody, any anybody on anything. It's, it's. I want if you're if you're for these things, you're over here. If you're for those things, you're over there. Um, and it's perpet. It's not just him. It's. Um, I used to think. I used to think that we'd be better off with a President Pence. You know, maybe he'll get impeached and he'll be out, and it'll be President Pence. At least he's quieter. At least. And I'm like, holy shit, just last night you took Hebrews 12 and you took out Jesus and you put in Land of Heroes and Old Glory. Yeah. Like incredibly blasphemous. Yeah. Like you just don't do that. And so now I'm like, ooh, I, I can't believe I ever even thought that. You know, he's he's yeah. kind of like uh, gained more boldness over the years or whatever. It's been weird. It's it's um there there have been some aspects. You know, I I, I thought Karen Pence gave a good speech last night that was befitting of her office, focusing on military and uh, military families and veterans. You know, I do think that Republicans, uh, that they've hit on some points that deserve, you know, response that don't, uh, that everything shouldn't be sort of swept away. Um, We just have to acknowledge in our politics that there are uh, sincere disagreements on both sides, even if the sincerity of those disagreements gets manipulated and exacerbated and sort of changed by politicians pursuing their own interests. It's really important to dig beneath sort of that manipulation that Trump is so good at to what he's tapping into that's real and deserves an honest response. That's what I appreciated so much about not, not to go but First Lady uh, uh, Michelle Obama and President Obama, who both acknowledged in their remarks, really like a shock. Um, I've never heard it in political rhetoric uh, in this at this sort of level before, which is like, I, I know that when they both said, like, I know that we're in an environment where you may not be able to hear me right now. <laughs> you know, that things are so wow. polarized where... You just, but I'm I'm gonna try anyways, and and just I'm coming to you with as much integrity and honesty as I can, and I hope that you'll like let down your guard enough to to like process what I'm saying and like don't accept it wholesale without some like critical thinking. But but you know I, I, this is from my heart. Like it was very moving and also kind of kind of disturbing at the same time that you have you have people like begging to be uh 
to, to be hard to, to get beyond sort of the defense mechanisms that people have. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm expecting, you know, we're recording this on, on Thursday. I'm expecting, you know, if the election was held today, Joe Biden would win. Uh, the Trump campaign knows that. Um, and I expect Trump's speech tonight to be um, visceral and strident. And I think he's going to throw everything at Joe Biden that he can because they know that they're not going to be able to raise Trump's favorability ratings. Uh, like, you know, if you don't like Trump, <laughs> there's not much he's going to be able to say that's going to like change your opinion. So they they need to drag Biden down. And I think that's the approach they're going to take. Yeah, it almost seemed I told I agree with you. And I was just talking with a buddy this morning. Like, I agree that I think if the election were held today, Joe Biden would win for a variety of reasons. I think I mean, America is exhausted. Yes. Like we are exhausted. I've never felt this exhausted in my life. Yeah. Just on an emotional, spiritual, mental, like it just the 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 office of the presidency shouldn't occupy our minds morning, noon, and night every single day. It, that's never happened. Like Yes, obviously, in the last eight, 10 years, I've gotten more into politics than ever. I truly loved, uh, you know, President Obama for so many reasons. But um, I never felt that way. I would, you know, I followed him on Twitter and other things. And he tweeted like once every week, like, right? Like, there's only a a few hundred tweets throughout his presidency. And that happens sometimes in a day's day's time with President President Trump. And so you've got just like so much. And I, it's, it's, um, I hope you're right. I hope you're right yeah. that we can we can continue to you know carry carry this through that that Americans will hopefully uh, as a whole see. Um, I'm sure there I'm sure there are valid, um, maybe not direct directly tied to President Trump, but I'm sure there are valid things that this that this presidency is doing. I'm sure there yeah. are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it can't be worth those things can't be worth what we're experiencing. Like the, 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 the fruit of what's happening is truly like hurting us as a whole. Um, you know, not even to mention that we're in the middle of a pandemic, right. Which has gone, which has gone every which way. And that's taken a toll. And we've, we, we literally have, you know, Laura Trump saying, you know, talking about women's like the, 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 the 4 million jobs that have come on the scene for women since the presidency. And she doesn't care to mention that 3 million of those have gone away since the pandemic started, like just crazy things like that. Um, let's talk about your, how do how you personally, obviously how you deal with this personally comes out in your work, but how do you personally navigate who you look to and trust politically? Because I, Correct me if I'm wrong. Would you count yourself? Where are you on the political spectrum? I mean, I mean, in terms of because I feel like there's again, maybe this is what I'm attracted to about you is that there's some things that feel very conservative and there's some things that feel, you know, like very right, very left and everything in between. So how do you where do you see yourself on the political spectrum? And then how do you um, as a as a as a father, as a husband, as a as an American citizen with Italian heritage, as a Christian, as someone who represents uh, people in the faith uh, in the faith uh, world, both for work and for and for pleasure and play for you, like how do you navigate those things? Because I know there's people that are listening right now that are precisely where 
you are and where I am. I think I'm, I, I think I'm probably more left than you are on a few things, but I still wrestle with these things. I want to, yeah. I always am aiming for who gives a shit where I land on this, like on the spectrum politically, I want to do the right thing here. Right. Um, yeah. I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of people there. So explain kind of your process. Yeah. I mean, so I have a lifelong commitment to civil rights and, um, and, and, uh, uh, poverty efforts. And so that has landed me, um, with the democratic party. Um, and again, like part of that is just family background. My grandfather was a union guy. And so like, um, that, that sort of FDR labor, you know, strain is, is, is pretty significant with me. Um, that, you know, uh, that, that said, you're right. I mean, there are issues where I'm very, you know, far, uh, uh, left on, on the spectrum. And there are issues where I fall more on the conservative side. Um, you know, I, I think a few things have, have helped ground me. One is, um, we increasingly treat political parties as our masters and not as vehicles for mediating our views. And political parties were never meant to be masters. Uh, and the reason for that is because, uh, I mean, they change all the time. The Democratic Party's position on trade right now is not what it was 16, 20 years ago. Their position on immigration was not, and so if you're if you're just if your primary identity is I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican and I that's just what I do, you're you're going to be a disintegrated person because uh, you're going to be you're going to be following not any sort of consistent line of intellectual like thought or outlook, but you're going to be following like a very complicated political process of how these parties hold together. And so that, that's, a, I, even as I've been a democratic operative, even, even as I've worked for democratic candidates, having that separation and, and remind myself of who I am, where I get my values from and bringing those to politics as opposed to letting politics dictate for me, what I, what I think, what I believe, what I think is right has been, has been really critical. I'd say that the, the second piece is, you know, a sense of history, a sense of, you know, the history of public policy in America is a history of unintended consequences um, and even, you know, counterproductive action. And so I think public policy is really important. I think elections are really important. But I also believe we should come to politics with a, like a tinge of ambivalence that's informed by the fact that even though you know, we have to act now. Like, like we, we can't be quietist. We can't be paralyzed by the idea that we may be wrong. Like we have a, we have a charge as citizens to, to act and lead now. Um, what we also can't do is sort of um, pretend as if we have it all figured out. And that sort of it's by any means necessary, we need to, uh, our political priorities need to be enacted uh, uh, now in order to sort of um, have a perfect society. Like we, we just ought to be aware of the fact that other people have thought that way and have been embarrassed and shamed and, and have had to apologize. And, and we don't want to be in the same place where we sort of um, use, uh, you know, to use 
kind of Christian language where we use unfaithful means to reach political ends. Politics, as important as it is, isn't worth that. It isn't ultimate. Um, and so, you know, th those two things have, have really, really guided guided me. Um, and I think it's um, look, and you've you've heard me you've heard me say this before, um, but politics is causing spiritual harm in this country. Yep. And it's because politics and politicians are uh, claiming space that they don't deserve. I mean, mm -hmm. this is what you're talking about when you're talking about Trump being in our living rooms every night. It's 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 like psychological oppression. <laughs> it's good for them. I mean, they the more they're in our heads, the more we're motivated to give them money, the more that they're able to sort of control and dictate how conversations play out. But it's not healthy and it's not the way our politics has to be. And at the end of the day, the, the citizens, <laughs> the citizenry uh, either incentivize or disincentivize that kind of approach. And we need to be a lot more thoughtful as citizens about sort of rejecting politicians, whether they uh, agree with us or not, from sort of encroaching on public life to the extent um, and our personal lives to the extent that they have been. If someone uh, just heard you say those words right now about, you know, politics were never intended to be masters, right? Maybe someone is acknowledging, okay, that's, that's how I see it right now. That's how it is for me. And I don't want it to be that way. I want to think more nuanced. I want to think more holistic when I think about politics and who I attach myself to and where I, you know, where I put money and time and energy, right? What are a couple things, like a couple tangible things that people can do yeah. to sort of begin on, to begin to detach from a, a political view or a political party or, or a politician as a master, right? Like this is, they are the end all be all. They are the one hope, you know, the, the kind of, kind of radicalized cultish things that we're seeing right now. Yeah. And look at it, look at it in a more nuanced, balanced, holistic way in the ways that you just described. What are some tangible things they can do right now? Yeah, a few things. So just on media consumption, if you keep track of what you're reading in terms of news for a week or two, and if you find that the overwhelming majority of the content that you're receiving, uh, that you're processing and that you're consuming uh, affirms what you already believe, um, then that's a good sign that you're not helping yourself out and you're not helping out sort of our civic life. Uh, like the, our disagreements in politics uh, are, uh, are are disagreements for a reason. I read things all, and this is my profession. I read things all the time that go, oh gosh, like yeah. maybe I'm wrong yeah. on this. You know, <laughs> right. like you right. know, like oh, gosh, I've never thought about it that way before. Um, and so, you know, make sure to. And again, this is not to put a burden on people. We all have time for different things. Not everybody has to be a political scientist or sort of read eight newspapers a day. But for the time that you're allotting, given your season of life, um, try to read as broadly as you can. Try to read things that, that challenge you. Try not to, you know, given that we all have limited time, stay away from the the, the trite and the sort of smug and try to, try to read uh, things that are 
that are more earnest, that are more informed, that are not just about riling up your emotions, but actually, you know, feeding your mind. So, so that would be sort of on the media consumption piece. And then in terms of what you put out, a, a similar suggestion, you know, look at your Facebook feed, uh, wall or your, your Twitter feed. And if, you know, 20 of your last 20 tweets are about affirming uh, your side or bashing the other side, uh, then, you know, it, it reveals something about, uh, like, th this is not a team sport. Um, if you're going to support a candidate, you should have be really clear in your mind about where you disagree with that candidate and, and, and anticipate down the road where you're going to disagree with them. I mean, this was an issue with President Obama. I mean, he there were um, there were things that he did that he said he was going to do and people acted like, oh gosh, how could this happen? I could never foresee it. Well, it, it's it's because you were only hearing what you wanted to hear and weren't, weren't actually uh, uh, looking critically and, and 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 saying, oh gosh, if, if I'm, I'm gonna vote for him, but if he gets elected, I'm, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to think about maybe there are some things I could do to make sure that, uh, uh, that that he understands and that sort of political powers understand, I'm not with you on this. And the same goes for Trump. I mean, I think one of the most frustrating things for folks when they think about, especially religious sport for Trump, is I think they kind of they kind of get some of the most, even if they disagree, they get like the the logical sort of reasons why you su support Trump. I think what really upsets people is the fact that so many religious people are being quiet about everything else. Like yeah. they've made some sort of blood pact where just because they voted for the guy, they can't criticism uh, criticize him on like just obviously, you know, unacceptable actions and things that he does. And that, that sort of sycophancy is, is, I mean, it's not consistent with being a Christian. It's not consistent with being a citizen. <laughs> like you're not doing your civic duty if you're giving po politicians a kind of pass because you view them again as sort of like uh, uh, mascots and not public servants. Yeah, I mean, any any healthy relationship has that give and take, that push and pull, right? Like, I mean, you're married, I'm married. Like my relationship is what it is 12 years in being married because it's not a yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, sir, no, sir relationship. If there, if I do something or say something or act a certain way that is not appropriate, yeah, that does not come across well, my wife will let me know. My kids will let me know. Like I feel I grew up in a pretty abusive home where there was no kid talking to parent about anything. It was only receiving and the receiving for so much of it was not, you know, it was all different kinds of abuse in my home. My kids uh, can talk to me now. We have to work through that, right? Yeah. But my kids feel comfortable telling me when they think that I'm wrong and it yeah. might come out wrong on their end, but that's a good relationship there. I have treated my children at five, seven, and eight. I've treated them in such a way. We have treated them in such a way that even at that young age, they can uh, most of the time respectfully, sometimes disrespectfully talk back and tell me, I don't agree with you. Yeah. I never would have been able to do that when I was younger. Why? Unhealthy relationship, unhealthy dynamic. Yeah, and right. I totally I totally see that. 
And I, I think um, I was gonna, I was gonna interrupt you a few seconds ago and be like, why you gotta call me out like that? Because sometimes <laughs> my timeline is it's not. I will criticize. One thing that I'm really good at is, uh, you know, is criticizing. I just have a. It's not even a. I don't know if it's a critical spirit on my part. I am. I. I just get very upset both when my the people that I run with are yeah. acting horribly or are doing or pushing for things or supporting things that they shouldn't. But I'm also, you know, I'm just equally as, as hard on the other side. And it, it, it sometimes comes across as like, Oh, Nick's always pissed off at everything. And I don't <laughs> feel that way yeah. uh, in my own life, but it comes across that way. And yeah. so I think I, those are some really good points. And I would add, I would add one thing. I know I asked you something, but I would add one thing for those listening is don't just think about, for so many people, they spent so long not getting involved in politics, and now because the, the the national level politics is so loud that that's where they're involved only. They're not yeah. giving enough time. They're not learning well. They're not researching well, and they're just by by learning how to be political at a national level. They are simply like just on Twitter and on Facebook and things like that. That's not what it's all about. But also go like super local. Yeah, like you can't if you're if you're only true. following you know, what's happening in Congress or what's happening on the Hill or what's happening in the, in, in the Oval Office, but you don't know who your council members are. You don't know who your mayor is. You've not tried to get a meeting with your mayor at some point. Like that's the wrong way because the people that are serving at your local level, it, it, assuming they're in it for the long haul, they're going to be in those national positions someday. And if you didn't know them here, like you want to follow them along their journey and really get to know them as they, you know, get into public life. And so I see so many people that are so interested in what's happening, you know, at a national level and they have no interest doing it at a local level. They've never voted. You know, they'll go and skip through all the pages, you know, at the ballot box to, to get to the big ones. And it's like you need to know who the new sheriff's going to be or the judge is going to be or who's going to be overseeing schools, who's going to be the treasury of the council. Like those are important roles. Yeah. And so I'm trying to encourage people as well to like get involved at a super local level. No, um, that's so important. Yeah. Yeah, super important. Uh, Michael, how do we get here? And here's what I mean by that. Like growing up in a very conservative Christian environment, um, I mean – it's funny now looking back, a lot of conservative Christians talk about the left, you know, and their 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 obsession with cancel culture, right? Uh, but we we did that. Like conservative Christians, I think maybe created cancel culture. I mean, I can't tell you how many, we had entire sermon series on the evils of Harry Potter and the evils of Cabbage Patch Kids and don't watch this and don't partake of that and don't wear name brand clothing. And maybe you should think twice about having a Christmas tree. That's a pagan symbol and all, I mean, we canceled everything except just a few things, right? And so I sort of get it now that I see it playing out, you know, to the tune of 80% of white evangelicals supporting Trump. But at the same time, I don't understand. So how did we get here uh, to, like, I was not a huge fan of President Bush. I was not a fan of most Republican parties that I've been alive for, Republican presidents that I've been alive for. But I could see, I think Bush is pretty likable. Like, I'd have a beer with that guy. I'd go play golf with that guy. Like, okay, he's very likable. Now we have this, um, we have this president that, I mean, has a scandal-ridden life from as far back as there are records. He's been doing things wrong and poorly, uh, hurting people, hurting women, hurting uh, minorities. And then he brought that into the presidency. We're now seeing it with a whole lot more power behind it. How are 80% of people that claim to follow Jesus, who loved 
minorities, who loved marginalized peoples, who loved women, who loved children, and really who summed up the whole entire the whole entire thing, all of life and love God and love your neighbor. That's it. Like do those things and you're on the right track. They claim to follow that and they support this guy. How did we get here? Small question, super yeah, small question. I mean, there, there's so much. Um, I think a vapid and inadequate sort of political theology, j just how, you know, in many ways, evangelicals have bought into the same kind of uh, relativism and the same idea that really actually faith isn't up to the task of informing our politics. Like the politics is like this area of life that's sort of cordoned off from God. Um, and you heard that, you've heard that over the last five years in particular, this idea that, you know, in order for us to be Christian in our personal lives, we need to have, you know, a bully in the White House. We, we, we need to make some moral compromises in politics because it's, it's dirty anyway. So if we're going to, so I think there's that. Um, I do think that, you know, conservative uh, evangelicalism is having and has um, had to have a reckoning with uh, the, the safe harbors that have been present for racism and misogyny and xenophobia. Um, so I think those are real things that are real currents. And then, Nick, as you know, um, I'm someone who believes that Donald Trump should not have won in 2016, and that 2016 was not all about James Comey and you know voter manipulation. Um, uh, uh, 2016 was to a certain extent, to a really critical extent, and especially you know I'm a Democrat, so I, I, I'm going to be critical of my own side, and yep. you know um, they thought that they could get away with ignoring broad swaths of the American public. Like yeah. they, they, they had a, they had an approach to politics that said in 2016, all we have to do is turn out our people and we'll win because Donald Trump is such a toxic and sort of limited political figure. And that was the wrong approach. <laughs> it was the wrong approach politically. Obviously they lost. It's the wrong approach for, uh, intending to govern and lead a country, um, there are sincere claims among religious conservatives that need to be dealt with. I'm not saying uh, that they need to be agreed with 100%. Sure. But they they need to be um, spoken to. And in 2016, like th there was just a cold shoulder. It, it's part of why I wrote, you know, I, I wrote Reclaiming Hope for like the dual purpose of I wanted to help uh, religious conservatives understand that uh, uh, Barack Obama and Democrats weren't waking up every morning thinking like, how do I hurt the church today? Like, like that, that what they've been told about the, the way these folks think about religion is misguided and, and not complete. I also wanted to help Democrats understand that, uh, that, you couldn't just sweep all religious conservative criticism under the rug of like racism or sort of just, uh, you, you know, um, uh, 
insincere sort of indoctrinated, you know, whatever, brainwashed, whatever, that no, like there's actually something here. And, and one way you can know that there's something there is because they're criticizing you for positions that you didn't have 10 years ago. <laughs> you know, like, like, it's not like the Democratic Party has been stagnant for the last 40 years, and it's only evangelicals that have changed, like Democrats have changed, too. Like, so there's going to be some conflict. Um, so there's there's a lot that's been happening. It's not the kind of thing that's going to be, um, and, and this is really important. If Joe Biden wins this election, it doesn't mean uh, that like we've turned the page to a new America. Exactly. It, it doesn't mean that you can, as a civic matter or a political matter, ignore the fact that millions and millions and millions of people are going to vote for Donald Trump in 2020, and they. They need to have a place in this country. We, we need to be really clear about what we reject and what sort of sentiments we say we don't want to be embraced in public life, but the people are there. And so anyone suggesting that they're gonna lead the country has, has to lead the whole country. It's part of why I've been you know, encouraged by uh, what's, what Joe Biden has been saying. He's, he seems to understand that. He seems to be committed to that idea that Yes, we're going to have real disagreements, but but I'm, you know, he said in this convention speech, he said, I, I, I'm, I'm glad to accept the nomination of the Democratic Party, but I'm going to be an American president. I'm going to be a president who who views my constituency, not just as the activists and, and the party members who support me, but but as the whole country. And that's that's just something we've been missing. It, it's certainly not Trump's approach. Donald Trump has not acted or talked as if he represents all Americans. And we, we've seen the cultural and political fallout of that. God, we need an America, a president that is for all, for the most amount of Americans possible. Like right. we, 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 we need that. We desperately need it. And you, you brought up a good point. One of the things that is, is still not, I, I guess, scares me is the wrong, is the wrong uh, approach, but I'm, I'm worried. I'm worried about November three. Uh, if, and when, you know, Barack Obama, uh, sorry, uh, Joe Biden. Because oh God, I, I wish Barack Obama was, could run for a third term, or at least Michelle. Come on, Michelle. But you know, if Joe Biden um, gets elected, Donald Trump has already done a hell of a job convincing people that it's going to be rigged. Right? He said it over and over and over again that if we don't win, it's because it's rigged, and millions of Americans will buy that horse shit. But and so my, my problem is. In the same way that, in the same way that Democrats said we're going to leave the country if Trump becomes elected, becomes president, and nobody left, or you know, right. a few people yeah. left, right? Yeah. In the, you know, people are saying we're going to take up arms if if Joe Biden becomes president. Like that's not going to happen, but it could. It could. I mean, we saw we saw President Trump bring that St. Louis couple to the RNC. They gave their speech. Everybody knows what story that's attached to. They came out brandishing weapons against BLM supporters, right, walking through the neighborhood, and then. Is it coincidence that two days later, Kyle Rittenhouse crosses state lines with an AR-15 and murders two, two uh, protesters? No, they're listening. They are taking cues from the top. And so I'm worried. Maybe it is scared. Maybe scared is the right approach. It's like, cool, November 3, Joe Biden gets elected. It's not over because he's already convinced you know, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of Americans. That's enough to start trouble. Uh, that if this happens, it's because it was done in a dirty way, which is not. It's not the case. We've already seen that voter fraud is virtually not a thing. It it can't happen in the way that he's convinced millions of Americans that it can happen. Mm -hmm. But they're eating it. 
They're they're right. taking it hook, line, and sinker. And so it's going to be an interesting, again, maybe best case scenario, Joe Biden gets elected, but it's not going to be a pretty couple weeks after that or a couple months. I don't know. Um, it's gonna be it's gonna be wild. What do you think's gonna happen? What's your sort of prediction for for those few days around that time? I mean, I, I am uh, hoping it's a blowout. You, you know, for for for, the, for this very reason. I, you know, I, yeah. I think- if it's close, right, it'll be easier for him to for cry wolf if it's like you know in That's the margin. Right. But if it's a blowout, there's no way. Yeah, um, and so you know, I don't think that this is an election where you want to aim for you know, 50 plus one, 270, you know, 270 electoral votes. I think this is an election where you need to go big for that reason. And also just um, the Republican Party has to be better. Like it's not, a, the Republican Party has not always been this bad. <laughs> and so, yes. um, but what, what it needs is to, really what the Democratic Party needed in 2004. Like they, they need to get cream. They need to lose an election that they really want to win and be forced to reckon with how they need to change. Um, and so, you, you know, I, I don't mean to, if the election was held today, Biden would win. Yeah. I am also cognizant of the fact that Donald Trump is going to be uh, uh, fully exerting himself in his convention speech tonight. And uh, we have a campaign where, you know, billions of dollars are going to be spent to influence the outcome. And so sort of making predictions for what's going to happen in November is just a very tentative thing. I mean, yeah. I, th- I think Biden's going to win, but, you know, we're going to have three presidential debates. Uh, we're going to have the Biden campaign has been pushing back on Trump when Trump has sort of made faith cr- cr- attacks on uh on Vice President Biden, the question I have is whether they uh, persist there, and I think they should in a in a responsible way, or whether they feel like, ah, eh, we did pretty much everything that we could do at the convention, and you know we're 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 now going to get out of that territory, which I think would be a mistake. Um, so, man, we'll just have to see how the next nine weeks uh, plays out. I mean, as you know, as you mentioned. Yeah, I track this very closely on my Substack uh, at reclaiminghope.substack.com, and so uh, and uh, on my on the Faith 2020 podcast, and so we we help track for people how these things are developing, uh, and you know it's it's presidential politics, man. Anything anything. It's wild. It's yeah. wild. For for a minute, talk about third party candidates. Um, yeah. You know, like for example, I I like Mark Charles. I think in a in a in a in a perfect world, somebody like Mark, I mean, Mark is what everybody wanted, right? He doesn't have the political background, right? Everybody wanted not a politician, but the guy's got integrity and he has depth and he wants, you know, to do really meaningful, substantial, you know, things for our country. But I mean, he has no support and I love the guy, but he he knows that he has no support. So like, there's a lot of people right now that are considering, you know, there's there's things out there about Biden, right? People have to navigate these things and accusations yeah. and different things that have happened. Those are real things. We don't want to ignore those. Yeah. How should people be thinking, Christian and non-Christian alike, how should they be thinking about, uh, what would you say to them to convince them to not vote third party, even though that might be an integrity-filled thing to do? Like, what's at stake here by not voting for Joe Biden? Um, or should they, if they really feel you know, in a heartfelt, sincere way about voting for somebody like Mark Charles or otherwise, should they go do that? 
Yeah. So I'm not interested in sort of uh, dictating to people how they vote. What, what, what I would say is the question you have to ask with your vote is, is not sort of, um, the question you have to ask with your vote is, is voting in this way the best stewardship of the limited influence I have mm. for, the, for the best result for the country and for the community with, you know, in, in Christian theology, we talk about a, a preferential option for the poor, which basically means that, you know, there should be a, there should be an additional emphasis in your mind on those who are going to be hardest hit, uh, who are most vulnerable uh, when it comes to political and social decisions. And so look, like if, if you think that a vote for a third party candidate is the most effective way to steward your vote possible. Um, that l- let's say that Joe Biden lost uh, by one vote in your state, and that sort of swung it. That you you would feel like your that in 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 that outcome, your your vote for that third party candidate was st- was still the best the best decision you could make. Then you should you should you should cast that vote uh, if you think um, you know it's the same reason why I say like sitting out of an election that's not possibly the best stewardship of the responsibility that, mm. that you've been given. Um, though I don't mean to put like an individual burden on people, I just think generally that's the case. There may be individual circumstances where like you, it's just going to be debilitating for you to make a decision. Generally, I think folks need to make a decision, understanding that your vote is not meant to be like a perfect expression of your will. No, your vote is a selection between options that have been selected by an entire community. Yep. And, and you're like, if you're a religious person, like God understands that. I often talk to Christians who act like they, they, go into the voting booth, make a decision and then get out and have to explain to God, like what happened in there. Like he, he understands. All right. He, he gets that you didn't make all the, all the decisions. The decision you do have is, is how do I cast my vote in a way that if I was the person determining the outcome on my own, it would be the best outcome in my discernment, in my sort of judgment for, uh, for, for the country, for the, for the community in which I live. I love that. I love that. What is your prediction for, this is a ridiculous question kind of, but it's, it's, I think about it often. Like what's your prediction for the future of America? And here's what I mean by that. Like we always talk about America as an experiment, right? And you look at the constitution, you know, a constitution that we still uphold and that even president Obama talks so like, you know, with, with such big and high respect for it. And yet in it, you know, there are 51 uh, references to people, to a person in there, and they're all white landowning males, right? There's no reference to a woman in there. So there's so women aren't re- represented in the Constitution. You know, uh, Native Americans are represented as savages, and black people are three-fifths of a person, right? And so we have a Constitution that still, by and large, is seen through the lens of, if you're a white landowning male, this is for you, and it's kind of for everybody else, right? So there's these big, you know, America's an experiment. Our Constitution's awesome, except that it's not. And, you know, like, should we just sort of, if it if it is truly an experiment, should we say this failed, let's start again. Like, let's take some big sweeping steps to fix. Let's not take, let's not take slow approaches. 
this is what I want to do. Like I'm a, I'm an, I'm an Enneagram eight. I'm a disruptor. I'm an agitator. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm more like a prophet. Like I want, I don't want to build things up. I destroy things and then let other people that are way more qualified than me build things up. Right. And so I want to come in and just like topple it all down and say, guys, let's not waste our time on something that is already, I mean, look at systemic racism, look at our for-profit prison system, look at all the things that are wrong that we just seem, seem to be like, well, that's bad, but meh, like we'll fix it at some point. And I just, I personally am not okay with that. I'm like, no, let's just topple the whole thing down and start over, right? Uh, but I know that's not, it is possible, but it's not possible. So what do you sort of see, like what, what's the best case scenario you know, Joe, Joe Biden gets in, we've got these big problems. Like, how could we fix it as quickly as possible for the most people as possible? Yeah, I mean, look, there's no uh, there's no silver bullet here. Uh, the outcome of the election in 2020 is important. It's not going to solve everything. No, you know, I would say um, for all of its problems, you know, the view Barack Obama had um, was uh, you know, the Constitution offers a framework that we've been wrong, both on the right and the left, to sort yep. of view it as um, as something with a uh, um, with a sort of very definite meaning that, like, that we just have to argue over. The Constitution provides a framework and and some clear guidelines. You know, no religious tests. You know, like yeah. uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, obviously we have the Bill of Rights, uh, but but those are that's a framework in which the civic process can take place. And so I am, for instance, uh, cautiously optimistic about the rise of civic engagement, particularly among young people. Um, I am. Um, uh, I am uh, encouraged by the younger generation's commitment to justice, even if they don't always know what that looks like. Mm. They have the they have the aspiration of justice, mm. um, and like I don't think we, <laughs> I don't think we. This is just going to be. Um, we have to work through these issues together mm. and we, we, we need to, um, uh, with focus and determination and with a sense of, um, appreciation for different opinions and we need to act. We need to put the burden on legislators to legislate. We need to put the burden on citizens to not just complain, but to act and to serve. Um, uh, you know, my, my hope is that this is a period of, you know, where the ground is being tilled, where we are in this disruptive sort of time right now, but that, you know, uh, that a time to build, you know, is, yeah. is going to come out of this. Um, and, uh, you know, you know, for me, Nick, at the base level of this, there are all kinds of structural reforms we need. Um, I am um, very frustrated by any attempts to um, restrict voting. I, th I think voting is um, as close to sacred as you can get with a civic act. And so, like, if you want people to trust in the civic process, having the right to vote be protected is like the baseline level of that. 
Um, I think, you know, there are problems with gerrymandering and with political representation. But at the base level of this, Nick, is the state of our politics reflects the state of our souls. It reflects the incentives and disincentives that citizens put into the system. I think that we're in a period right now where Americans are starting to reevaluate what they're incentivizing and disincentivizing in our politics. And if that changes, if, if the American people make a decision about what they're willing to accept and not accept in our politics, um, then we'll, we'll see change happen. And it, as, as slow and arduous as the process is, as the democratic process is, at the end of the day, it is accountable to the people. Um, I think what frustrates a lot of people is, you know, they feel they 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 feel really strongly about what direction things need to go. Uh, but but there are others who disagree, <laughs> and, and that's you know that's democratic process. That's what we have to what we have to work on together. I love it. Couple simpler, easier to answer and, <laughs> and questions as we begin to wrap up. I could we'll we'll do this again sometime. I could talk to you for forever. But a couple kind of simpler ones as we wrap up. One is kind of bring it full circle. What were some of your favorite? parts about working with and for President Obama. I mean, a lot of people listening love the hell out of that guy, really respect him and and the first lady and you know what that administration brought about. So what were some of the favorite parts? You got kind of an inside scoop, which people need to read your book, Reclaiming Hope. It's got a lot of that in there. Um, I love that book. I've read it a couple of times. But yeah, so what were a couple of the things you loved working with and for him? Um. I mean, first of all, it was just like an incredible honor. Um, you know, I'd say that uh, being in a position like that can really um, turn you inwards, can make you less intellectually curious, can sort of strip out the humanity of a person. And, you know, I was there for the first term, so I wasn't there working in the White House for the second. But, um, you know, I still remember notes in the margins of memos I wrote that he would leave that would just like, would be inspiring. I mean, would just be like, this is someone who is who is not just sort of a political robot. (laughs) This is not someone who's just operating off of sort of cold calculation. Like this is someone who is engaged like in the civic process, who is asking good questions, who is, uh, you know, earnest to a to a really remarkable degree for someone who achieved the office he had. And so that will always be inspiring to me. I mean, I mentioned earlier, as we were talking about his convention speech, and, you know, I mean, you, you've read the book. I have some, some, criticisms of the man I love. I love President Obama. I have some criticisms of him. Overall, his determination to represent and speak to as many Americans as possible is something that we will hopefully not just have to but hope, you know, hope, I think it's something we'll admire in light of the, these four years. Hopefully it's not something that's only in the past. Hopefully we have that again in the future. We certainly don't have it now. And I think we're seeing how critical yep. that is. Um, yep. And then, I mean, look, he, he was, um, he's just a very smart guy. I mean, he processed information like 
very few people I've been around in, in my life. Um, uh, and yeah, I mean, I could go on, but it was, it was yeah. an incredible honor to work for him. Um, and, uh, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for his continued leadership. Yeah, it's beautiful. I'm a, I'm a little jealous for sure. I mean, I just, I admire the guy for so many, for so many reasons in so many ways. And I have a healthy amount of disagreements and that's, that's the world. Yeah. Um, Michael, do you have any political aspirations? I know that you're like, you know, you, you have this role in at the intersection of faith and politics and culture, but there's a lot more that could be done. And you obviously have, you know, you know how this world works. Like, do you have any political aspirations or, uh, or what? Yeah. You know, I, I, I tend to believe that's the kind of thing that's brought to you and that, um, you don't seek out. And so, um, and sort of what it would take to seek it out just doesn't seem like the best use of my time. So I'm going to continue to like serve where I am and, and find ways to be helpful and speak to what I think is important. Um, and you know, if the opportunity came and felt right and felt like it was the right move, um, you know, I've been involved in politics my whole life and public service is important to me. Um, but I don't have designs, you know, on, on anything other yeah. than, um, you know, this idea of what does it mean to be faithful in public things and wherever God leads me on that, you know, I'm good. I love it. Uh, Michael Ware on Twitter, right? Yeah. And michaelware.com is your website. Yeah. Uh, Reclaiming Hope. And I saw so friends, I have read reclaiming hope a couple times go get the book i have not read compassion and conviction i'm sure it's good i just haven't read it so yeah, yeah. so i'll based on what i know about you get the book <laughs> if you're if, if you're interested in you know things about faith and culture and things like that um any other urls or websites we should point people to no, just my, as we wrap yeah, up here? just my website uh i have a personal website. they can get to everything from there that's right like all of your yeah yeah that's right yep oh, they can subscribe to your newsletter from there. They can find your social media, all your writings, all endorsements, all that stuff. Yeah. So michaelware.com. Michael Ware, thank you so much for joining us. This was super fun. We learned a ton and just really grateful for who you are and your work. Hey, man. Thanks, Nick. Appreciate it. Well, friends, that's the show for today. A massive thanks to Michael Ware for joining us. Lots to learn from Michael's work and life. Visit letsgiveadam.fm for more resources and more links and all that jazz. And thank you for listening. Seriously, I'm so honored. I'm so touched that you listen to these conversations week after week, that you show up week after week to support what we're doing and to learn and to grow. I created this show. Chad Snavely produced it. Let's Give a Damn is part of the Matter Media family. And again, you can reach out to me anytime for any reason. Hello at letsgiveadam.com. Sending love and peace to each one of you. Stay safe, keep giving a damn, and until next time, peace.